Appreciate everyone's willingness to learn some new music, too. If you don't recognize a song, chances are it's because one of us wrote it. And I say us because I didn't write any of them. And I want to be included because I am in that band. So if I play a chord in a song that Matt's written or Val's written or something, then I can say we wrote it. So I enjoy that aspect of being on a team. But uh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Great stuff. And uh, thank you. Let's do that. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever run into somebody uh, when you're way out of town, maybe even out of state or even more ironically out of the country? You You bump into somebody that you know from home. And and it's disorienting at first because you're thinking, okay, I I know you, but not here. I know you from back there. And uh, you run into that person and either it's somebody that you know and like, or it's somebody that you're not too fond of or you don't have much in common with. But when you're removed from where you are, doesn't it seem to change things? It's hard to be someone's enemy or to be uncomfortable around them when you're in this remote place or you're so far away from home and you run into them if if this hasn't happened to you i don't think that the experience would be all that hard to imagine you know you run into that person and at home you can dodge people because you know your routines your roots your your distractions your um you know all that kind of stuff and we have a we have an ability for the most part to build a life around us to be around the people we actually want to be around and some of you live in, uh, near your family, and so there's nothing you can do about that. So those are the other parts of us, you know. I shouldn't have said that out loud. I work with my family. That didn't sound good at all. That's not what I meant. But if you can imagine just for a second, you know, being so far away from home and then running into that person, that's, whether they're close to you or not, how knowing the same places, having the same experiences... Um, um, knowing the same people, how that would all of a sudden, to some level or degree, connect you even when you're far away. Back home, they're not necessarily your best buddies. But when you're over there, or you're down there, or away, all of a sudden you feel it's like, wow, I didn't actually know that person in that light. What's going on below the surface is the fact that we have a tethering or a connection to something that we can both relate to. Is that making sense? All right, good. For three of you, it's making sense. The rest of you are like, get into your sermon already. I'm trying. So Peter wrote a letter to people that were scattered all over the place. In the last couple of weeks, we've been breaking down the introduction to that letter, the types of people he's reaching out to, and the circumstances that they find themselves living in. Now, thinking about them being scattered and isolated. What's happening? Take two. Let's start this over. Have you ever been in a place where you ran into somebody? (laughs) See, it worked. You're You're with me now. So Peter's talking to people that are spread out all over the place who may not have had a friendship with somebody that's in another territory, but because he's drawing them together through the opening of his letter, he's saying, look, I know you're all over the place, but you have something in common. He's finding an anchor point. He's finding the thing that they're tethered to so that he can help them to see that we have more unity amongst us than you would ever imagine. 
So you're down in Aruba or something like that on vacation. You bump into somebody, even if it's somebody, let's go really crazy. And, and let's, let's just say you strike up a conversation with somebody in line. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we're from the Northeast. So we never get weather like this. Northeast, really? Where are you from? They're like, Maine, ever heard of it? Not only have I heard of it, I live there. And then they say, well, where do you live? And you say, I'm from Waterville. And they're like, I live in Albion. I can't believe it. How have we never met everything? And so it just becomes this bonding experience because you know a lot of the same things. You know, never before have you thought that you would be somewhere else and just talk about, so do you know where the Taco Bell is on KMD? Hey, how do, I, how, do you know where the family dollar is down in the concourse and everything? You talk about things that just don't matter to you, but because somebody else from where you are is away, they, you want to connect on something, you want to relate to something. And Peter is saying that's the same thing that happens with us in a time of discomfort or a time of peace. When we are removed from the thing that we're comfortable with, we look for any kind of anchor point that says, I need something familiar. I need something of substance to kind of calm me down, to make me feel like I'm not lost in this big wide world. And so Peter is saying, there is a thing that is linking you all together. And I'm writing this letter to all of you spread everywhere. And hopefully all of the readers and listeners will share these words because I want you to understand there is a thing that bonds you all together. And if you can't be with one another, or if you never bounce into uh, each other in a line in a cruise ship heading for Aruba or something like that, it doesn't matter because you have a, a stronger bond of something that will never go away. Peter needs to establish this foundation because he says, remember we've been saying this for the last couple of weeks, because it's about to get even more uncomfortable than it's already been. And if it's going to get more uncomfortable, you better have something more substantive, more of, a, of an anchoring foundation that you can rest on and you can stand firm on. When things get all squirrely for us and the, and the pressures start to creep in or, or the trials, as the scriptures even share with us in our text here, you know, those testings and those, those uh, difficulties that we go through, when those things start to creep into our lives, we look for the thing that we can say, okay, that's what's real. No matter what happens around me, I need that one thing that is real. And Peter's saying you better develop that focus and you better work on this now until, before it gets really uncomfortable remember we said last week when's the best time to work on these disciplines it's in times of relative peace and safety we fool ourselves to think well when it gets bad then i'll dedicate myself to this process when it gets uncomfortable or scary or when you know the jihadis come or whatever scenarios we imagine for it getting really bad in our country and everything when that's bad that's when i'm gonna um hunker down in the word of god that's when it's not even going to be uh, a discipline to read through the Bible in a year. That's when I'm going to huddle with my neighbors for prayer. And that's when I'm going to finally join that small group and all those kinds of things. And, and if you wait till those times come, what you end up finding is that when the chaos is going and the, in the figurative or literal bullets are flying, it's really hard to focus on what you're supposed to do. That's why first responders, that's why soldiers, that's why um, um, people that are in those kinds of environments on a regular basis practice before the chaos hits and they practice over and over and over again. So Peter is sending the word ahead of time and he's saying, you've got to practice this now and I'm going to tell you where to anchor your strength in. We don't like thinking about the word habits in, in a positive way. We, when we think of habits and developing good habits and stuff, we go, you know, usually we see habits are the things that we're supposed to drop, especially this time of the year. 
You know, so many of us have already failed at all the habits we were supposed to be kicking on January 1st and all that kind of stuff. And so we go, man, habits. But how many of you had to think about if you're wearing laced up shoes this morning? How many of you had to, do you even remember tying your shoes this morning? How many of you had to remind yourself, I have to put the car in drive or in first gear or I have to turn the key before I do this? So we do so many things automatically now because of the great capacity the Lord is, is hardwired into his creation. Did he do that just to make our lives more efficient or did he also do it because developing spiritual disciplines isn't such a worldly thing to do? You know, if we're thinking about, well, I want to pray more, I want to read more, I want to serve more and give more, we sometimes think, well, if it's mechanical, then it's not really of the Spirit because I didn't feel led. I didn't have this emotional push to do this. Instead, I did it fairly mechanically, and so I don't know how I feel about that. And the Lord's saying, look, I've given you the capacity to do the right thing now over, uh, over and over again, often enough, when it's relatively quiet in your life, so that when it gets difficult and either the figurative or literal bullets are flying over our head, you'll know exactly what you're supposed to do next. So there's a point in all of Peter's warnings. Let's read in 1 Peter 1. Let's pick up in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I always pause there accidentally. Who are protected, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. I love how he's assuming one thing, but he's also, in a sense, commanding something. He's saying, this is what I want you to greatly rejoice in, but there's also this assumption, I'm sure you already are. I mean, clearly, if you really understand these things, you're already greatly rejoicing or celebrating this one thing that even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Remember, he's not talking to a bunch of comfortable, lazy, lackadaisical people. He's saying that the the heat is turning up on you guys, and I recognize this, but you just have to know it's going to get worse so that the proof of your faith in verse 7 being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." So Peter's saying, I'm taking you on this journey. I'm getting you to see the disciplines and the things that you're going to have to start building into your life. Trust me when I tell you this, it'd be easier for you to focus on these things now than waiting till later. And I know that you're fairly uncomfortable now, but it's going to get worse. So if he's going to say, this is where I want you to move in this direction, he's going to help them understand this is where you're starting from. You know, every time we punch in our coordinates or our directions and our either in GPS or something along those lines or Google Maps or something, it's always more helpful to know where you're starting from so that you have an idea of how long the trip's going to take, um, you have uh, lay out better routes and all those kinds of things. So Peter's saying right at the beginning, let's figure out where we're starting from before I start telling you where you need to go. 
And that starting point is this one phrase in, uh, in verse uh, 3 where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. If you're not familiar with that phrase, born again, then you haven't made fun of Christians enough in your life. Because for, what, 20 or 30 years, we've been hearing, oh, you're one of those born-agains, right? It's become a phrase, it's become a title. or a, Because born-again usually is equated with somebody who's just radically different, and they're giving all their money to their church, and they've built compounds with walls around their, you know, their properties now, and nobody ever sees them coming or going, and they're freaky people and all these kinds of Born-agains has a, has a connotation of being uh, a few screws loose, or, or somebody who's, um, who's just got a crutch. They've had a major breakdown in life, and they had nowhere else to turn but to Jesus, and so so now they, you know, give their whole lives to their church and stuff. Born again has been a phrase that has been, unfortunately, I think, hijacked by just common culture. When we stop and think about what the phrase means, born again, and we see how powerful and potent it is to realize that we've been given a new life, that the system and the world and the practices and things that we were born into was something that wasn't um, gratifying to the Lord, wasn't glorifying to the Lord. And so as we started recognizing our emptiness and our need, and we said, okay, Lord, I need to hit the reset button, it's, it's as though he just gives us a whole new life, and he births us again into this living hope, is what Peter is saying. He says, by, your, by his great mercy, you and I have been able to hit the reset button, start over with our sins forgiven, all of the, 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 the blackness of our hearts, what we were born with before we could even make that first cry of rebellion to our parents because we wanted to eat or something like that. And we just, we were already born in that state of sin. And he says, you have been reborn into a living hope. This is where you are. If you're in Christ, this is your starting point. Before I send you down the road and tell you how long the journey is going to take, I want you to, to settle that in, in your minds that you are secure in Jesus Christ. It's difficult for us to wrap our heads around because so much of our own personal security we feel relies on us or we put too much faith in the government to take care of us or maybe in your marriage you've just looked for your spouse to be your, your satisfaction through everything and if they let you down then the world crumbles or maybe uh, your kids have what's brought you all your peace and your hope and your sanity and all these kinds of things and so when that starts to break down you know all of our foundations start crumbling and so for us to really think about something being secure and especially that security dependent on something different than something we can control, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around. So what we're going to do is we're going to take just a few moments to talk about how secure this salvation is, where does it come from, and what makes it something that we can actually trust. And I think what makes it something we can trust is because who our salvation rests in. It rests in three persons. All members of what doctrine will tell us, theology will tell us, is the triune Godhead. Our salvation rests in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4 tell us, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Now listen to this. Even before he made the world, God loved us and God chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. 
our salvation, that is our rescuing from our own sinful hearts, our own sinful practices, our own empty futures, that salvation has come from God the Father who has pursued his people. If you've been around theology long enough, you've been around the church, some of you are geeking out in a couple of different directions. Either if you're from an Arminian perspective that, that really wants to emphasize man's response to God's free gift, or whether you're from a Calvinist perspective that wants to focus on then uh, the Holy Spirit's regeneration, God's work that draws and, and pursues from that direction. There's those both ends of the arguments, and, and Ephesians, uh, the Ephesians 1 passage is, is a great place to start that debate, and it's, it's taken um, uh, about forever to solve that debate that still hasn't been solved. So if you're on either one of those spectrums and feel very heavily, I'm going to frustrate you both today because I don't think that's really the point that I'm driving at in this text. The, the unquestionable point in verse 4 is that God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. The Father pursued us. He pursued those he loves. Now, when you have God the Father who is creator of all things, all the, he is the description of what we sang about this morning, after you? I mean, is that really something you feel like oh, you could play around with or something? I mean, it, it, doesn't that give you that sense that someone that strong and that mighty because of his great love pursued his people? That there's this underlying security, there's this, there's this great knowledge of knowing, okay, what he has given me is in his hands and not in mine. It's the Father who's pursued us. And, and this, just so that we don't think that, that, uh, that Jesus' part in this was something along the lines of, well, I'll go and do this for my Father and, and I'll, I'll lay my life down for, for what he wants and everything. But at the same time, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, let me put it this way. Sometimes I think that Jesus is preached, the sacrifice is preached as almost though he's the son who's come home with a puppy. And he says, can we keep him? Dad, can, can we hang on to these people? Almost as though that God was big, maybe grandfatherly, detached from what was going on. Jesus comes and does his things. He's the one that walked this earth for 33 years. And he gets all of the acknowledgement of the relationship that's built. But even Jesus himself doesn't allow us to think that if we understand the scriptures. He prays a prayer in John 17 to his father. And in the, in the crux of that prayer, he says, I have manifested your name. This is in John 17. I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Jesus' work was all about securing what the Father wanted. The Father wanted you. The Father wanted me. The Father wanted billions around the world that would lift their praises to him, that would, that would lay their lives down, sacrificially speaking, living sacrifices, so that his name would be praised and, and let what we talked about, the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus did that in concert with what the Father wanted. The Father pursued us, but Jesus paid for us. It's spelled out so well for us in 1 John 4. The scripture says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Don't you love that word? Just, just to yourself quietly, just say propitiation. I don't know, it flows so well. I, there were other translations that I looked at and had great meanings and translations of that verse, but I couldn't get away from how that word propitiation just makes me sound so intelligent. Doesn't it? You're looking at me in a different light now. You didn't know I was that smart. I could say a word like that. But propitiation is a great word, and it's so rich in meaning. And I get this image, as I was reading this this week, I get this image of, a, of, of, of us being tied to the tracks, you know, like the damsel in distress, you know, in the black and whites, and she's just screaming, and ah, you know, and the ropes are around her, on the, and the train is barreling full steam. And, and Jesus, in, in, in providing this propitiation, I'm going to say it about 10 more times so you can share it over lunch today, stands in front of this moving train, the representation of God's wrath for all of those that are in sin. And, and he holds back the train. He stands before it. You know, any images you've had of Superman and all that kind of stuff. I mean, this is, this is so much more powerful than that. And he holds back that, that freight train, that moving force of God's wrath barreling down on us as we're tied to the tracks. And he says, back up, train. You're not taking this one. You're going to back up, and I want you to go full steam ahead again, but wait until I've replaced this person. They're going to tie me here instead. And then as soon as I'm in place, then you just start rolling. Get those wheels spinning. Get that whole thing moving down the tracks. I will take, I'm not telling you you can't keep coming down these tracks. I'm telling you you're going after the wrong one. Jesus' propitiation, what he's done is he said, my father, because he's perfect, because he's holy, he wouldn't be God if he was okay with our sin. He said, because of that, I need to stand in front of the moving freight train of my father's wrath and take their place. He subdues that wrath in that sense and receives it for himself. Jesus paid for our salvation. Think about our security and how, who it's already belonging to and what we're talking about. It's already belonging to the Father's pursuit. It's already ta- belonging to the Son's payment. And yes, I have a third P word that I want to share with you because it just fits. It's supposed to be a P word. That's what they taught me in preaching school. You're supposed to do three. Anyway, you don't care. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Scripture says, God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He, who is the Holy Spirit, called you to salvation when he told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, here's your third P word, prompted you. God the Father pursued us. Jesus paid for us and the Holy Spirit prompted us to receive the gift. In all of this, I don't hear an opportunity for me to brag that I figured it out. In all of this, I don't hear an opportunity for me to start panicking that what I enjoy in Christ is somehow going to go out the window just because I looked at somebody crossways. I don't have an opportunity to think that everything that has been built in me that is supposed to be secure in me, that Peter is saying you have this anchoring point between you all, that is that you have been born again to a living hope. It's spelled out from the scriptures that it is all about the work of God. 
and not what I bring to the table. All I brought to the table was the object that that needed to be loved and forgiven. All I bring to the table is my own brokenness. It says, okay, you've got to clean me up because I am not doing a good job myself. So in this, in recognizing that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit is working in this way to bring about salvation in the individual, we have to start gaining a greater confidence that this salvation is secure. I didn't do the work to get it. How do I think I could do the work to lose it? That scripture just says that he, the Holy Spirit, called you to salvation when we told you the good news. You've been hearing the good news for a long time. Maybe you've been, um, you know, if you're from America, you hear about uh, everybody all over the place talking about, you know, Jesus saves and God loves you and things. Maybe you've been coming to this church for a long time and you've been hearing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how it's powerful enough to save us unto a living hope, and we've been talking till we're blue in the face about the work that Jesus wants to do, and maybe the Holy Spirit's been calling, and you haven't been listening, or you haven't received or responded. It's never too late. In fact, it's not really a wise thing to just wait until it gets worse. Remember what we were talking about. Why not act now? If you hear his voice now, why not respond To the rest of you, let me ask you a question. Do you ever let the reality of God's work in your salvation just blow you away? Do you ever stop and just take some time and think about the levels of of work and, I hate to use such a human word, but planning that God did to send you the message of hope the day that you received it or the time period that you received it or the events of your life unfolding the way that they did specific to your story? Do you ever stop and just go, wow, I didn't just fall into this. I didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what? Today feels like a good day to surrender to the Lord. We don't do that. We're born in sin. Our hearts are hard. We run from the things of God. And so instead, why did I respond? How did I let that in? How, how, did he, how did he reach down and show his love to me? Do you ever stop and just think about all that he's done? And if you're having a hard time really being in awe about that, picture like when a camera backs away from the globe, when you see like that shot from space and all of a sudden, you know, it starts in your home and, and then it backs up like a, in a reverse image of, of Google Earth or something. And then, you know, it backs up over your town and then your state. And then you recognize, oh, that's the United States. I can see the tip of Florida and all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden it's just a globe. And you think, OK, out of all of these people on this globe, God shared his love with me. And I'm actually in a point right here, right now, this morning, I am listening for his voice. I am reading his word. And somehow I think this is because I'm good enough for this. It blows me away every time. Why is it when I'm with my kids or I see them growing in their faith or something, I go, okay, well, that's just a product of good parenting. Yeah, right. I wouldn't have figured that out. Apart from Christ, the scripture says, I can do nothing. So why me? Why did he call me when I was nine years old? Why did he lead my family to himself? And then all of a sudden I was kind of going with the flow, if you will, but something really anchored and turned something over in me and I've wanted to walk away from him, but he won't let me go and all these kinds of, why me? Does that ever blow your mind? If it doesn't, 
you need to stop and dwell on it for a little while because our salvation is by his glory. That's why it's secure. But it's also for his glory. I want to just get into a couple more points here as we're wrapping up our, our time. We've got about five or so minutes. And I think we can do this. I love what Moses says to uh, God when, when uh, Moses has just led the people out of slavery. They're complaining all over the place. It's not going well. Um, God's chosen people, these people with the great uh, banner of being rescued by the Lord and have seen all of his great miracles. They were snatched from the enemy's clutches are whining because they're sick of what they're eating or they're whining because they don't like, uh, you know, what they don't have to drink at the moment that they demanded or whatever the case, you just a different day, a different complaint. And Moses is just carrying those complaints and those burdens and everything. And the Lord's holding him up. And eventually it even, I hate even describing this story because it sounds like God just shifts and thinks differently and like, oh, you know what? I can't do this today. And God doesn't do that. God is consistent. He's steady. But I think he shares these, these um, expressions for us to realize the, um, the um, disobedience of these people because God has had enough of this complaining. First, it's Moses. All right, Lord, why'd you call me out here to, be, to lead these people? It's like herding cats. They won't do anything. All they do is complain. You've never herded cats? Just think of any fruitless exercise and that's the epitome of it. God even says in Numbers 14, he's had enough. And he says, I will disown them and destroy them with a plague. Then I'll make you, Moses, I'll make you into a nation greater, greater and mightier than they are. Moses, I'm in this with you. I'll hit the reset button and we'll get you some new people that will actually follow your leadership. You want to you do this? I'm ready to go. Just tell me you're on board. But Moses objected. What? <laughs> it's like giving him a lottery ticket. And he says, nah, thanks. He says, what will the Egyptians think when they hear about it? He asked the Lord. They know full well the power you displayed in rescuing your people from Egypt. Now, if you destroy them, the Egyptians will send a report to the inhabitants of this land who have already heard that they live among your people, that you live among your people. They know, Lord, that you have appeared to your people face to face and, and that your pillar of cloud hovers over them. They know that you go before them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slaughter all these people with a single blow, the nations that have heard of your fame will say, and underscore in your minds this next little phrase, the Lord was not able to bring them into the land he swore to give them. So he killed them in the wilderness. Not only is our salvation by God's glory, by his planning, by his strength, by his might, but it is for his reputation. Remember we said this is living for a fame that he deserves. Our rescuing is so that others looking on will say he is faithful. He does love them. He won't let them fall apart. And Moses recognizes this. He has every opportunity to take God up on his get out of jail free card to make his life easier. And he says, I don't want to see that happen to your reputation, Lord. I don't think the Lord needed to be talked off the cliff like somehow he was going to just throw it all in. 
But I think he shared that so Moses would come to the realization, this is bigger than what my comforts are commanding. This, this is bigger than what my, my own heart is demanding of you, Lord. I will not have come this far just to watch your name be dragged through the mud. Moses is having the perspective that you and I should when it comes to our own appreciation and acknowledgement of the work that God wants to do in our life. We so often wake up each morning and wonder whether or not we can do it anymore. Whether or not any of this is worth it. Whether or not I should be a part of that church. Whether or not I should be the one that's reading the Bible and everything. They don't know what, what I'm going through. Or they don't know how bad I have it. That is a focus on whether or not we want the salvation given to us at any given time. Moses is saying, it's not mine to choose. This is and has always been about your name. If you've called me to this task, if you've put me in this flow, if you've put me in these responsibilities, then it's more about keeping your name famous than it is about poor little old me. When we take a step back and realize that our salvation is reserved and anchored in Christ, that it is held fast, that it is gripped by his strength and for his glory, we'll start to realize we do have an anchoring point worth keeping. Our experience, though, is, is that we have such um, uh, broken promises all around us. We're, we're in an election season. We're going to be approaching the bigger election season later in the year and stuff. And really what we do is we evaluate who's going to lie to us less, Right? Isn't that our pessimism that's creeped out? It's not like we haven't had enough um, data to draw those conclusions from. But we have a tendency to just rest in the fact, or, or not rest, but we've come to accept that, uh, that people are going to let us down, that, that, um, that uh, promises can be just tossed aside. We are used to being let down. We are used to people making us promises until it no longer satisfies them or is no longer convenient for them to execute and things. So we have to train ourselves while we have the opportunity to remember that God's salvation, his reservation of our hearts is secure. He doesn't make us a promise that he eventually just fails on because, eh, eh I'm not really into this anymore. God has always been the keeper of his promises. And so Peter's letter is addressed to these saints everywhere because the saints are kept for God's glory. The saints are prepared for God's glory because he says these trials are coming. And, and if you survive these trials, who does it point to? You and your great strength. We've already established that none of this we could have figured out on our own. Moses even tells, uh, uh, tells the Lord in, uh, in response to the Lord's uh, desire to, to annihilate all the people. He says, listen, your reputation's already preceded you. People know that you sustain your people. What will they think about you then? The Lord Jesus Christ, because of his, his act and his security in us, he's paid for us. We are secure by the Lord's work and his glory. But we are also prepared because if you think about if, if our football season had ended differently, I'm sorry to bring up such a painful thing, but you guys should all be over it now. Super Bowl is behind us. We all know, or those of us that pay attention to these things, that the home team was not the same team that started off the season. The team that started off the season was healthy. They were precise. They were perfect. And then by the time we made it to the end of the season, there was like 
visible band-aids all over the place. People were on the field and crutches and all that kind of stuff. It was a mess. This team was just barely limping on. We had guys with broken, uh, a broken foot running around, all these kinds of things. We had no idea the injuries that were on that field. If they had pulled it off, if the Patriots had pulled it off, sorry for those of you not Patriots fans, you, you should have known who I was talking about. Um, if they had pulled it off and made it all the way to the end and actually won the Super Bowl, who ultimately would have gotten the most credit for that? One quarterback? Probably not. It would have been the guy who used all the right pieces and all the right players at the right time that even though the team was falling apart, he didn't lose sight of the overall plan and he would have said, okay, that's the next guy up. I can use him over here. I can move all that. And people would have said that is the greatest coaching strategy we've ever seen ever, to be able to come in to the Super Bowl with those pieces or the lack thereof and still pull it off. The point in all of this is that when you and I survive the trials of life, when you and I thrive through the trials of life, when we start to um, look after one another's needs, when we start to um, still uh, give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ with our lips, all those things, we, we, we keep it together and then the growth of the kingdom still happens. Even with all the bad swirling around us, our coach is the one who gets the credit. Not because you and I are super saints. They know us too well. We admit it too freely. They would know that it's he who holds us up. And so Peter is trying to get this message across to these folks so that he can start building on that foundation saying, now let's get real specific of the things that you can do. But you have to be anchored in the security of your salvation if we are to apply these things. Remember, we are not going to just get better in our marriages. We're not just going to get better in our finances. We're not just going to get better in all these things just so that we look better just so that we have a more efficient life. All of these things are for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand? Uh, we're going to close our time in prayer. I'm going to ask uh, Mr. Dunbar away in the back if you would close our time out in prayer.